There's several things we don't have in this neighborhood. We don't have hope and we don't have dignity. The people in our homeless shelters, no hope. As far as they know, they're gonna die in their shelter. Everybody comes back to prison, tells you there's nothing out there for you, right? I was terrified getting out of prison. Starting over at 50, like what was I gonna do? You know, I joined the gang when I was 14 years old. Because of the lifestyle, I got shot five different times. As you get older, so much of your identity is with your job or with your family. And you know, that kind of all disappears. And it's like, who am I? What am I? What am I gonna do? The amount of income you have defines our, our health. So if you're poor, you're gonna be sick. And it doesn't help when people are like, oh, well, you can just go to the food bank and you can just get stuff. The place is too dangerous. You can't bear to stay there. They can do whatever they want to do because you don't have mother and father. I came up with the idea of 12 Neighbors by getting involved in answering the question, what does it look like to love your neighbor? Loving my neighbor, it's not something that you can just throw money at. It's something that you have to throw your time. Your neighbor could be your enemy too. Or you gotta break bread with people, man. The neighbor is the other. The neighbor is the one who's outside, and that's radical. I'm so blessed that even in my brokenness, I get to help people. You don't need to fix every single problem that people have. You don't need to be a hero. It makes me believe that wherever I am, I can definitely be an agent of change. I want to create a movement of people who are both educated, know wisely how to go love their neighbor, and secondly, that they're inspired to go do it. Good evening, church. I've been here for almost eight years, and I, I can say that I've never been as excited about a series for our church to get into than I am uh, right now. And uh, this is going to be, I think, um, a significant moment in our church. And um, I don't say that just kind of uh, because Marcel's sitting right here, and I'm not, I don't say that to just try to amp us up. I think if we as a church put our, uh, our absolute like, heart and soul into some of this stuff over these next few weeks, we can be an absolutely community-changing church. And, uh, and so it is my privilege to uh, welcome Marcel Lebrun to the stage. And uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. I'm I, excited too. Yeah, good, good. Um, I know kind of two weeks in a row of kind of an interview style thing is not typically um, normal for us. However, I think that Marcel has a word for us tonight, and uh, he's going to speak on Isaiah 58, even just through our conversation. And if you don't know Marcel, I just want to give him an opportunity to introduce himself, because um, this whole series is about story. It's about narrative, and each one of us, you, you have a story, a significant story about what God is going to do or is doing or has done in your life. And so I would just love for you, Marcel, I'm, some of these people have worshiped beside you and sat beside you and maybe never, ever met you. So just take a moment just to kind of uh, give us uh, the Cole's notes of your story and kind of where you're coming from. Yeah, thank you. Good evening, everyone. Um, and I'm, I'm so excited, too. Uh, we've launched this thing, and it's been fun to watch. 
a bunch of other churches launch this or all around North America, but I'm so excited to see my church do this and just to see what goes from it. So I can't wait to see what comes. Um, so a little bit about me. I'm a grafted in Maritimer, uh, trying hard to reverse that you know, trend, population trend. Uh, I moved here when I was 12 from Ontario. And so went to high school and university here and uh, I moved to Fredericton as a UMB student in the late 80s. And I studied uh, electrical and computer engineering. And that, yeah, engineers are there, yeah. And that's where- um, One other nerd in the, in the room, that's, that's right, great. That's yeah. right, that's right. And that's where um, uh, my uh, faith encounter kind of happened in my first year of university. And uh, really, I gave my life to God at the kind of around exam time, the end of my first year. And the way I kind of describe it is uh, in Jeremiah 2.13, um, it says, My people have committed two sins, or have done a, a double wrong. Uh, they have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and then they have dug their own wells, broken wells that can't hold water. And that was kind of the characterization of my life at the time. I, was, I went really hard after something that I thought that's the thing that's going to make me matter, you know, and make me significant. And then I would kind of get there, and then I'd realize that's not the thing. And then I'd think, well, this must be the thing. And then I'd go dig the next thing and the next thing. And I think at the end of my first year of university, it's kind of like that movie Holes. It's kind of like I was looking at all the holes that I had dug, and I just reached this kind of pinnacle of disappointment with my digging. And I felt God say, well, you know, you've never really given me the chance. And so at that point, I, I said, okay, you can have the chance. Even though I didn't really understand the gospel, um, I just was kind of surrendering to God, saying, you do what you want with it, uh, with my life, because I'm not doing so good. And, uh, and I went home that summer and um, tried to figure out what that all meant. And then the next September, I came back, and I met a group of students that were involved with a campus ministry called The Navigators, and someone invited me to a talk. And my, so my first talk ever I went to, uh, the speaker was there, and he spoke about Colossians 2.6, uh, which says, So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, and he explained what that meant, and as he explained it, I went, I think that's what I did last April. And he said, So then, just as you do that, continue to live in him, become rooted and built up in the faith. And he kind of talked about this uh, thing as if this is the beginning of a new thing. And I was blown away because I thought believing in God was like the end of something. And all of a sudden, I'm like, what? It's the beginning of something. And so, so that began my journey in Christ. And I met Sheila through them. She was involved with navigators at, um, in Dow. And uh, we both shared a vision to you know, be lifelong disciples of Christ. And I also kind of liked her, too, is the other thing. And uh, so, yeah, so we got married. And we have three adult kids now. And, um, and you, you probably know her from being on stage a little bit singing. And uh, yeah, and my career has been mostly as a software engineer and a software entrepreneur. Very cool. Um, you know, when we've done kind of a documentary um, series like this in the past, um, it's, it's, it's great that we kind of get to take material from, produced from who knows where, from Nashville or LA or New York or Vancouver or something. What I find so special about um, this content, uh, this documentary series that we're gonna be in, is that it's homegrown, it's local, and the quality of it is, is like bar none. It's incredible. And so can you just take us through kind of the process? I know there are some people even in our own house um, who have been a part of this, um, and I just, we're in this, this season where we've talked a lot about leaning on the strength of the house 
And uh, for these next few weeks, we get to do that from this material. So can you just take us through maybe that process a little bit? Yeah, I mean, um, it's my first time, not my first time being involved in a film, but my first time that, to this extent. Uh, it was about three years in the making um, from idea to launch. Uh, could have been two years, but I had a concussion in the middle of that that took a year of time out of that. Um, but about two years, and I uh, had a great team, and two of the core team members were uh, my daughter, Sharice, and then Blair Weber, who's from here. And Blair and Sharice were kind of our researchers, and we, uh, you know, Paul in Galatians 5.14 says, all of the law and the prophets hang on this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. And so we wrestled with, what does that actually look like, to love your neighbor as yourself? What does a living a life of that mean? And we studied all the scriptures that relate to it and all the books. And Blair and Sharice did a lot of the writing of the story arc. And that was kind of a year-long process of figuring out what is it that we're going to talk about and what are the points we want to make. And then they started researching uh, who are the stories out there that really embody and represent these things that we want to tell. And they, I think, had maybe over 100 groups that they researched and then whittled it down to... I think uh, maybe about 20 or 30 and then started to engage with these organizations and and of course when you're telling stories you got to find the organizations that do the kinds of things you want to portray but then you also have to find amazing people inside those organizations that also resonate on camera and so Blair and Sharice did a lot of that work and then we moved into production we hired um, Hemmings House um, uh, Pictures in St. John that's led by my friend Greg Hemmings that do incredible work um, our producer was actually uh, Adam Lorden, who's the mayor of Miramichi. He was the producer of the film. He's also a filmmaker. And, uh, and, and then we ha I had this notion that I wanted to have uh, original music in every episode. And so Blair became the songwriter, and she wrote lyrical music that uh, she wrote after the story came together to kind of match the story and also bless the people that are in the film because we built relationships with all these people and we wanted to you know, through the films, um, help them as well. And so, yeah, that was the team. Very cool. Um, part of the songwriting process for Blair was it's, it's hard to just write a song for a piece of video for this. You actually have to do something called scoring, which is significantly different. Uh, and so after all the films were completed, uh, Marcel um, kind of got uh, a few local cross-pointers, uh, myself included, um, to kind of take these pieces of scores actually make them into a six song album. Uh, and so that is available online. And so I've got a question. Has anyone here, apart, you know, away from staff, raise your hand, has anyone here seen, like gone online and watched all six, uh, all, I think, how many videos are there all seven. together? Yeah, seven weeks. Has anyone, raise your hand if you have. You guys are going home with one of Blair's albums and a. 12 Neighbors t-shirt, so come find me. I saw that hand over there, it's kind of dark, but uh, we just want to be able to give you that because Blair put a lot of effort and Brad Perry here uh, at, in our church as well, again, recorded all that stuff and I was very blessed to be asked to kind of produce some of that material and so uh, we just want, just go online, look up Blair Weber on iTunes or Spotify or wherever so there's a kind of a shameless plug for her. Um, she's in Australia, so she can't do it herself. Um, but take us through the, the genesis of this idea, I kind of alluded to Isaiah 58, and I just love this story about how this, uh, this word struck you and the genesis for this idea kind of began. Can you just take us through that a little bit? Yeah, so in 2015, uh, I, I was leaving 
I was kind of in between things. So I had just left this company that I was with, and I decided to take an extended time in the scriptures to just um, ask God, what do you want me to do next? And not necessarily thinking I was going to get, you know, a super clear answer, but I thought it's just going to be good to spend time in the scriptures and kind of resync and my heart with God's heart and all that. But um, I got one of the clearest answers I've ever had, and God brought me to Isaiah 58. And it's really interesting. Isaiah 58, in verse 2, it starts off where he says that my, these people, all day and all night, they seek me out like they want to know my ways. And it's like, okay, that's good, right? They're, they're working hard to seek me and find me. And people were doing, you know, they were fasting and praying, and they, but they're saying, God, why don't you notice when we fast, and why don't you pay attention when we pray and answer us when we pray? And in verse 3, God kind of clarifies, says, well, you know, while you're fasting and praying, uh, you're also oppressing your workers, and you're doing whatever you want, and you're uh, fighting, and this kind of thing. He says, is that the kind of fast that I want? And he says, no, this is the kind of fast that I want. He says, I want a fast where you loosen the chains of injustice. I want a fast where you remove the burdensome yoke and set the oppressed free. I want a fast where you share your food with the hungry. And then in verse 10, it said, um, I want you to spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your darkness will turn into noonday. And for me, um, what I heard God say is, go figure out what it means to spend yourself. And that really started the journey and I started to lean into those things and do those things. And as I did, I started to discover all these notions that I had that, that were uh, maybe well-intended but incorrect around what it actually meant to help. And I read a bunch of books. And there's one book that I read called When Helping Hurts, which I learned a lot from, but I found a little bit discouraging because it told me all these things I was doing wrong. But then I was looking for the next book, When Helping Helps, and it was hard to find that. And so I decided that I'd basically make one and that's what the film series you know came out so it was really a journey for me to, a learning journey for me that got it started yeah. very cool I think one of the um, most important keys of this series as we go through it as a church is going to be um, kind of our, the groups part of it and we've been kind of put putting a push on for this um, for, for you guys to be leading group and groups and hosting groups and joining a groups and we want to continue to tell you to do that you just go to crosspointchurch.ca slash 12 neighbors and uh there is an option for that and i think even after church we're going to have someone out there with an ipad ready to do that for you um and in this in these groups one of the things that we're going to talk about is this idea of your circle of compassion which um i'm probably summing it up terribly but essentially we each have our own kind of circle of areas of influence in our life and we determine you know who uh, is in those circles and who is outside those circles based on, you know, various different things. Uh, and so in that, how can we challenge ourselves to, to look beyond that circle? Um, how can we uh, be challenged with who our neighbor is and outside that kind of circle of compassion? Yeah, and it really surprised me when we did research on this. We asked people their preconceived notions, who is my neighbor? And I thought, of course, everyone's read, you know, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan and, and, and knows that my neighbor is just not my blood relative or whatnot. But it really surprised us, actually, um, how many people struggled with that answer. And like you say, we all have that circle. We can all 
know who's in there, you know, obviously our family and our friends and all that. And if you were to think about that circle and draw who's in your circle, um, but then, you know, there are probably people that are outside of it. And there might be people that are outside of it notionally, like, you know, I don't care for them. Uh, but there may be people that are practically outside of it, you know, where you go, oh, everybody's in my conceptual circle, but practically, you know, they're, they're not. And so I think the opportunity is how do we let God challenge us to expand our circle of compassion? And I think for me, there's two things that going through this really pushed me to change my thinking on that. The first was, just seems like God opened up the scriptures to me to make me realize, he almost said, do you realize how important this is to me? Like how central this is to me? And I started seeing things like this. Like, for example, as a as a, as a navigator student, it was like we'd talk about the harvest and, you know, Matthew and, uh, 9.37 where it says the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Send out laborers into the field. And I always thought that labor was like an evangelist, right? But you step back a verse and Jesus saw the multitudes and he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless. And so the work of the laborer is more comprehensive than that. Or when you look at in Luke 4, when right after Jesus was sent to the desert for temptation and comes back and he's starting his ministry, his very first declaration of him, him being the fulfillment of the scriptures and the deity, he, he basically, if you remember, gets up in the synagogue and reads from the Old Testament. And he's, then he, everyone's watching him and he says, this scripture is this day fulfilled. Well, what was that scripture? That scripture was... Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, uh, freedom to the oppressed. And then, and then his last act, you look in Matthew 25, he's on his throne with all of the angels, all the nations are gathered before him. He's about to give his, the inheritance, the kingdom of God, to the people of God. And how does he describe them? You, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. And it's like everywhere I went, it's like this is so connected to the heart of God. And so that forced me to expand that circle. And then the other one is my notions about poverty and what does it mean and how do you get there? And we're going to show a little clip um, in a second. And uh, but first I'll tell you a story. This clip is set in uh, Los Angeles. And I went there and interviewed some ex-gang members. And these gang members were, they'd all spent most of their lives in jail. They'd all done drugs, sold drugs, shot people, been shot, the whole gang lifestyle. So pretty intimidating, you know, space to be in. And I thought that my notion of poverty was kind of fairly progressive, having read the books and been through all this kind of stuff. And so I thought, yeah, of course, I know people can get into these situations for lots of different reasons. But I kind of had this notion that if you're still living in this life, that you were kind of making some choices, you know? And I remember asking this one um, ex-gang member when he told me his story of transformation. I said, well, what was the thing that made you decide to change your life? And he paused and he looked at me and he said, I always wanted to change my life. And he said, I just never thought I could. You know, I get out of jail I go back to doing what I do because it's the only thing I know how to do. And, I, and it just hit me because I thought, I thought, you know, when you go do those things, you must be choosing it. And for him, it didn't feel like a choice at all. And so let's watch this clip. And I think for us, it's about how can we try and understand a bit better, you know, how people get in these situations. 
You know, my father was a heroin addict, so he'd he have us in houses where we call shooting galleries, houses where everyone's just shooting dope. On top of that, you know, my father was very violent. He was constantly beating my mother. Um, we tried to protect my mom and he'd beat us too. So it was just like that, four years old, I was like, bam, robbed of my childhood, like robbed of my innocence. I come from gangs. They run um, generations of gangs throughout my family or whatnot. My whole entire life, I've been going from jail to prison. Because usually when I get out of prison, I go back to doing what I do. I've uh, sold drugs, used drugs, robbed, whatever comes with the street life. And eventually I'll get caught again and go back to prison and it's a repeating cycle. You know, I had another son and um, his mom was pregnant, giving birth in the hospital. And I remember in my head thinking like, man, I have this baby so I could leave. I don't want to be here. So my son was born, and I was staring at my son, and I was um, watching his stomach move up and down, and I, I, don't, I guess you could call it a spiritual awakening. For the first time in my life, I thought to myself, like, where did I go wrong in my life? I'm 49 years old, and I got more time in prison than I do on the streets. I was up north in a prison, and well, my oldest son, he's six years old. I recall him sending me a letter. He's like, Dad, I miss you. He's like, Dad, I never see you. And when I do see you, I only see you for like a month. Yeah, and um, I wrote back. I wrote back to my one night, um, look, son, um, please let your mom know that, um, yeah, you will never have to go through this again or whatnot. It's like, what kind of man would um, lie to his mother on her deathbed? What kind of man would just not raise his kids and not care? I'm gonna end up coming in here for life and I'm never gonna be able to come out and show my kids something that I wanted for myself. And it was that moment I knew I wanted to change my life. When you lived a certain way for so long, the little things just wow you. You say that I'm good, but what does that mean? I don't transform anybody, but I'll tell you, transformation happens here. So you mentioned before that you um, kind of some of this inspiration was sparked from Stephen Corbett's uh, book, When Helping Hurts, and then you looked later for a book for When Helping Helps. So like, how how do we help? How like how 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 do we love our neighbor? Like how that, that's the big question. So you got to sign up. Right. For a group, right. yeah. <laughs> Great um, book. That is the number one question. It's I want to help, but how? And we've all felt that, right? We've all seen a need and and probably avoided engaging in the need because we felt like I just don't know what to do, and I don't feel equipped. So it's the number one question everybody has, and that is what we're focusing on in the film is through these stories helping people realize this is how you help, not this, um, and. 
first thing I'd say about that is it's important to figure that out in a group. It's really hard to figure out by yourself, um, especially in a specific situation. How do I help with this situation? It's really hard, but in a group it's more powerful. Um, the second thing, so we start, uh, we're starting tomorrow in the series, and so the first one we're doing is called Spend Yourself. I'll just give you an example. There, we wrestle with this notion of um, what is poverty and what helps? And a lot of us have a material notion of poverty. So we think that a poor circumstance can be helped by money, for example. You know, you come in and you help the situation. But what you learn through the film is that a poverty of circumstance affects a poverty of identity. And so someone, you'll hear people say, well, I got in this situation and suddenly I believed maybe I deserve to be here. And what we, what, what we found is those who help people transform change the narrative of their identity. And if you change someone's circumstance, but not their narrative of their identity, they'll go back to the circumstance. And if you want to change their identity, you can only do it through relationship. And so you have to spend yourself, not your money. So that's an example of one of the tips or one of the notions that we'll, we'll start into uh, next week. Yeah. Um, so this, this question will sound maybe self-serving, but what's in it for me? Right, like, look, we have, this, we have this thought where it's like, okay, well, we can go out and we can do these things, and it's nice, we get that fuzzy feeling in us, right, for us to go out and do something nice or treat somebody well or throw money at something to say, hey, I helped. But like, what truly is in it for me? What's, what's in it for each one of these people who, who occupies a chair? Yeah, and I realize I forgot to introduce a clip, but oh, I'll, do, right. I'll do it after this question. Um, this, is, this is a question that I think is super important but not intuitive, because you think, this is about loving your neighbor, why would you ask the question, what's in it for me? One of the things I discovered is almost everyone I talked to who'd kind of really gone into this said, I went into this wanting to help others, but I'm the one that got transformed in the end. And I didn't even notice it when I first got hooked onto Isaiah 5810. Uh, I missed the last phrase, but it's like, spend yourself on behalf of the hungry, Satisfy the needs of the oppressed. Your light will rise in the darkness, and your own darkness will be turned into noonday. Right. Or verse 8 says, your healing will arrive. And there's something very powerful about engaging in this command of loving your neighbor that results in our own transformation. And I've seen it with all of the people that um, we did there. Yeah. So you want me to go to the yeah, clip? Yeah, okay. So this clip is... Um, story of this guy TK and I think what's interesting is how many times have you walked by a need and you've seen it a thousand times and you never thought what do I do so TK is on his drive he, he's um, we're in Ghana in a city called Accra and he's on his drive to work and he saw these homeless kids and always drove by and then one day decided to turn his car around and that's what this little clip will introduce So one day I was just returning from dropping my brother off at the bus station. And when I got here, I realized there were some kids playing next to this um, wall by the mall. And when I, when I saw them, I was a bit conflicted. I, I was wondering, you know, why are these kids here? Why are their parents? And it was a little cold. And I was, I was thinking a lot about, about faith and our responsibilities as, as Christians. Um, we're supposed to live life like Christ. And he spoke a lot about the values of service, compassion, justice, 
and I felt guilty about just driving away. So I went around the, the runabout and I went back to where the kids were. And as I drove closer, my, my heart started beating faster because I, I didn't know what questions to ask them. Um, but I did it anyways. When I got here, I noticed one of them was up and I rolled down my, my glass and I called him over and I, and I asked him, what are you doing here? And he said, this is, this is why I sleep. He said he goes over to the intersection to, to wipe windshields. Sometimes he makes enough for a meal a day. Sometimes he goes to bed hungry. And the day I met him, he hadn't eaten since um, the previous morning. I decided every weekend I would make jollof rice and then I'll come into the street and hang out with these kids. And I made a promise to myself that I'll be consistent. And then even if they don't talk to me, I'll still show up anyways. working with our kids on the street about three years ago and I joined him a year ago after we got married and our progress really developed organically. It kind of showed itself over time as we were present and were faithful in joining the kids on the street and understanding their reality. It kind of became obvious to us what we needed to do. It's not easy to walk up to a street corner where there's a whole bunch of kids that everyone else deems wild and like social deviance, that's really intimidating for a lot of people. What I've experienced in my own life is that you have to embrace that discomfort of leaving your, your area of expertise, your comfort zone, and you have to be daring enough to go beyond whatever that physical or mental barrier is that gets you to the other side where other people are, and you realize they're not just other people, they're human beings with incredible stories to tell you. When I first watched um, that week, and I think that's the second week, um, it, what struck me about this video in particular is I have a 39-year-old brother who's spent his whole life on the streets doing that exact same thing. He's got a bucket and a squeegee, and that's how he makes his days living. And I, sat there thinking, uh, you know, I wonder if there's any, been anyone who has stopped to hear his story. Because he has an incredible story. He's, you know, he's been on a raft from Florida to Cuba and got deported. And, like, he's, he's been across North America on the back of trains and hitchhiking and stuff. And, you know, in the times where he's been on street corners just trying to make a living with a squeegee, like, who has stopped and asked him about his story? Because he's not just another, he's a somebody, he's a human being, and he happens to be my brother. And so uh, that, that week in particular um, really stuck out to me. But what, what's your hope? What's your hope for your church? I, I, I think it's, this is so cool, again, that this is us leaning on the strength of our own house and some content that was created from, uh, from here, uh, or from somebody from here, and um, 
But what's your hope for our church? What's your hope for Crosspoint during these next few weeks and even beyond that? Not just for this, you know, these next seven weeks that we're going to be going through this material, but like for your church and for this community, for this city. Yeah, tough question. Um, first thing is, I think I want to acknowledge that I think there's already a lot of amazing things going on. So it's not like I'm coming in with this going, yeah, we got to get going, you know, because I know not only things that the church is doing, but things that a lot of individuals are already doing individually or, or together that are doing amazing things in the community. But my hope is just to kind of light a fire and just see what happens and see where it goes. And it's kind of like, you know, a little kid, I feel like, you know, the little kids that draw a picture for their dad and the picture's not that great, but the dad loves it and puts it on. It's kind of what this filmmaking process has been for me is like, I'm just giving this to God and saying, here dad, and do something with it. But I'm really just excited to see what might come. And I feel like if it can inspire a handful of leaders in our community, you know, I, I'd love to see us as the church, not even so much you guys, but us inspire a few people who go, yeah, I'm gonna a uh, move into broken places where I haven't been. You know, two, I'm gonna learn to listen, and then collectively we're gonna listen, and we're gonna understand the needs in our community. We're gonna listen to God and where, what He wants to do and then some of us to just take action. So I don't really have a specific thing, but if, if we can just kind of light some fires and just see what God's gonna do with it, you know, I think that's, that'll be exciting to see. Yeah, not, not to interrupt you, I know you have more, but I mean, I, and I don't wanna single anybody out, but there are stories within our church that I, I'm sure most of us don't even know about. I think of the Eric Collicotts who, who start uh, Square One, who's just had a passion to go out and chat with people, right? Or, uh, you know, I, there are some, I think I saw Candy out there, you know, who are serving at our, our shelters, the, these churches who kind of open up these empty rooms and they have people just stay there for the night just to welcome people in. There are, uh, you know, we just started this new um, weekly ministry at Greener Village where it's not just, you know, stocking shelves. Don't think of it that way. It is, is hearing people's story, is being involved in uh, an organization within our city. It has nothing to do with ministry necessarily, but it's finding out ways to get involved in our community. And just, um, you know, everyone has an idea. Marcel had an idea and it went, and he said, all right, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna do this. And Eric, he had an idea. Okay, I'm just gonna go ahead and do this. Each one of us have an idea of how we can help. It's just about getting the bravery and the courage to step in and just say, all right, I start now or whatever. But anyway, just some cool stories already that are happening. Yeah, and I think that that's the way it should go, you know, rather than us go, hey, I hope our church does something. I think we need to do stuff. Right. And then and then as a church, we can get behind people, you know, and what they're doing. And um, to the Greener Village story, there's a story in the films of a community food center. Yeah. And they have this philosophy. If you go there and say, hey, I want to volunteer, they say, well, we don't do that here. You actually join our community. And so when you come here, we have people that work in the kitchen and we have people that eat. But if you wanna come and help, you can work in the kitchen and you can eat. And if you came here because you're hungry, you can eat and you can work in the kitchen. And so in a way, when we go to Greener Village, we could think of ourselves as doing a task, or we could think of ourselves as joining that community. And just the change in mindset changes how we think about how we approach things. Because there's people there working that, that need encouragement and all that kind of stuff. And so as I think with these films, we can help people you know, develop different paradigms of how, how to love your neighbor, yeah. Very good. 
Um, I think we just have one more clip that we want to show you guys, and then we're going to kind of land the plane in a, in a little bit of a different way tonight. But uh, yeah, just kind of set us up for this, this last little bit. Yeah, this is just kind of a, a little bit of a, a summary clip. A lot of these characters you don't know because you haven't seen the stories yet, so there's a bunch of different characters. And it just kind of, think about the question, what does authentic gospel living mean? My faith is really based on verses like James 1.27, that religion that God sees as pure and faultless is to care for orphans and widows in their distress. And that is a call to action. Anyone can do it. It doesn't take a special person. We're just being asked to come alongside and care for people. And so I bet my life on that. And I believe that God loves the world. And so I am called to love the world. I'm not called to love the world in this church box. I'm called to love the world where it is. Mother Teresa said this, we all can't do great things. But each of us can do small things with great love. You don't need to fix every single problem that people have. You don't need to be a hero. Just listen. I think that's a natural thing in people. We all want to care for each other. We all want to help each other. We love doing that. You know, I watch my grandchildren. They don't want to do anything more than they want to help. People are longing for authenticity. People want to live as though the truth were true and they, they don't know how to put first things recognizably first, but they long to do it. People want to take seriously what Jesus took seriously. They respond to it on a visceral level. They go, yeah, that's what it is. It's about authentic gospel living. It's not about a system of beliefs. How do we keep imagining a circle of compassion and then imagining nobody outside of it People long for that. It also happens to be God's dream come true.